Mac Power Users, Episode 319, Academic and Writing Workflows with Teddy's Faronos. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. How are you today, Katie Floyd? I am done, David. You're done? What are you done, done with this podcast? Or No, I'm not with? done with the top podcast. I am just, I am done with, with uh, school and tests and exams, and I just feel like a new woman today. So the yeah. heavens have opened up, and uh, I, am, I am great, is what I'm saying. I am on That's a roll awesome. here, ready to go. Yeah, for those of you in the audience who don't re- know, uh, Katie's been going through an LLM program. It's like a master's for lawyers. So uh, it's a big deal. And she's been going through it for two years, and she just took her last exam like hours before we sat down today. Yes. And, Congratulations, uh, Katie. Thank you. So if I'm a little, little incoherent for this podcast, you know why. Now, uh, in terms of academia, you are like my superior now. So I don't know if there's some, do I need to start calling you professor or anything? I'm not sure. I don't know. We can think about it. But, you know, we do have someone who's a little bit more of an expert in academia, probably than both of us, and can yeah. can take us both to task here. Uh, and that's our guest, Teddy. Teddy, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. It's cool to hear your voice not coming out of my podcast player. <laughs> <laughs> well, Teddy is definitely our academic superior in all, all methods. Teddy's a, a PhD student in health policy at Harvard University. And, um, and Teddy also teaches, you know, as, as a PhD student, I'm, I believe you teach the master's students and the undergrads. That's right. Uh, mostly master's students in uh, statistics and methodological stuff. Yeah, and, and so, so Teddy has been writing uh, us, we've been talking to him for some time and this guy is, in addition to being very smart, he's also one of us, he's a nerd like us, and he's using some really uh, impressive technology workflows to teach his classes, to write his papers. Uh, we kind of sell this as an academic and writing show, but I think there's a lot of good stuff in here for anybody, like some of the presentation stuff Eddie's doing, Teddy is doing, uh, was news to me and things that I hadn't thought of. So uh, strap in gang, I think we're in for a really fun time here with Teddy today. Uh, before we get started, though, why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is you do over there at Harvard? Sure. So I'm getting a PhD in health policy, but um, my track is in statistical methods. So most of my research and my teaching is about statistics and program evaluation and how we determine whether health programs are having the impacts that we want to have. Um, and so both my writing and my teaching work are all in sort of statistics and methods. Um, the statistics that I teach is in public policy, it's to policy students. And so it's not, it's teaching statistical methods to people for whom statistics is not necessarily their main interest or, or kind of preference. And that's the thing that I kind of like about it. Yeah. I, I had to take, uh, cause I, um, I was a weirdo in college. I started out engineering and then I switched to the college of arts and then I decided to go to law school. So I was the only guy in the political science department that had taken like two years of calculus. And, um, but even then statistics to me was something I really didn't want to do. And I waited till the, like the last quarter of college and I took it with the other person who was really doing well in our department. We had like, like a little pizza challenge. That was the only way we knew we'd get through the class. So I bet you're dealing with people like me every day. Yeah. I'm going to do a pizza challenge for my, for my students next year. I get, yeah, you got to, it's all about the pizza. <laughs> who cares? Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's a cool thing to do because I think, 
So teaching statistics itself is a difficult thing to do because you've got to make it accessible and all that. But it's cool teaching it to students that don't particularly find it interesting because you have to make the statistics itself compelling as well, right? So there's like this pressure from either side to both make it accessible and make it interesting. And that's kind of why I like it so much. Yeah. And they don't even really understand. In my case, I didn't even really understand what the point of it all was. And it wasn't until the, the professor kind of explained that that I said, okay, this is something I want to learn. And it sounds like a great opportunity to use technology to kind of get that point across. Yeah, I think I definitely kind of have a reputation for being the the tech-oriented uh, teacher, but I guess it's something I kind of like. I think, in fact, I think that's the first way you and I met is one of the other professors at Harvard said, hey, you really, somebody else who listened to the show said, look, you really need to talk to Teddy because he is like killing it with some of the technology workflows. Um, <laughs> that's really nice to hear. Yeah. And then we also had, um, in addition to teaching you write, I mean, obviously you're getting your PhD. So there's some stuff we want to talk about with that as well. But uh, before before we do that, for the sake of the family of Mac Power users out there, let's talk a little bit about less about why you're at Harvard and more why you're a Mac nerd. Sure. So the first time I ever used a Mac was in, I believe it was third grade in my computer lab. And when I got home from that, I was trying to convince my parents to get a Mac for the household for years after that. And eventually we finally did get one. What, what, um, when was that? I, it, really? Real, you know, that was um, like sort of late 90s. Yeah. And so my first, the first uh, home Mac we had was a translucent blue um, iMac. Oh, so you were in the you were in the iMac era. You you skipped over the Power Max and uh, you know the little beige boxes and the Quadras and the Performas and all of those fun things and jumped right into the iMac era. Those those guys are what I got to use at school. But when I finally convinced my parents to get me a, a Mac, it was a it was an iMac. Yeah, I, I've heard a lot of people in the same boat that that was really the the Mac that people brought into their homes for the first time that was kind of welcomed in by the the family and, and parents and all. And I have a lot of friends who their parents got them their first Mac, and it was one of those those cute little Bondi blue iMacs. Got to be careful how you pronounce that, David. You'll get a lot of flack on Twitter. I heard that, because I've always pronounced it Bondi, Bondi well, blue. Please and I email think I, David. I think that I got it wrong. <laughs> now, there, there is, there's actually an etymology to the word. It, it's somewhere in Australia, correct? Yeah, it's a beach. Okay. So how, do, how am I supposed to say it? Let me get it right. Bondi. Bondi blue. Got like it. Like James Bond and then I. E-Y-E. Like Bondi and Golden Eye, but no Golden. Just oh boy. Bond. Please email I. David. Yes. Did you did you ever have a Bondi Blue one, Katie? I actually never have. I don't believe. Let me think about this. I have never owned an iMac. Wow. Period. We're going to change wow. that. We're going to change that. I've never owned an iMac. Uh, I I owned the the beige box Power Max. And then, yeah. um, and then I went directly from the beige box Power Max to uh portables my yeah, and then, the laptops yeah, yeah then went to a titanium powerbook g4 when those were released in 2001 and have been a portable person ever since so so teddy you got the bond i blue imac and um and it was all mac from there yeah pretty much and then i when i went to college i got a little white macbook um but even then i was i was super duper into tablets i really wanted apple to make a tablet 
And um, when I graduated from college, I remember I had this application installed that would force the resolution of my laptop to be in portrait mode. Yeah, it would and like then, shift it like 90 degrees. Yeah. 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 And then I would, um, I, I used would to do that open just to PDFs and people, like pretend like I was I've... reading it like a book. Yeah. Okay. So you'd hold your, you'd hold the, you turn the white MacBook on its side and read the pages. <laughs> Yeah, and I wouldn't because it was a MacBook. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And when it came to actually typing or annotating anything, it was kind of out of the question. But it felt it felt nice to sort of be able to lounge back and read my MacBook like a like a book. I wanted tablets so bad. I even you know this is this is really on this show particularly you know sacrilegious. I bought a it was a um it was gateway. It was a gateway. Um, tablet computer it had windows on it but i just wanted to try tablets so bad and the thing was like eight pounds it felt like and it was terrible i mean it i mean it was it was just absolutely terrible but the uh yeah i feel you brother and uh so now that we do have things you can buy you know ipads are you into the uh, tablet lifestyle as well yeah i mean i think a hundred percent of my of my notes as a doctoral student have been taken not entirely on a, on a tablet, but they're all digital, and almost all of them were taken on an iPad. Um, so yes, I'm very, very, very much into that Kool Aid. So, so what is your gear as we sit here today? Well, I have the I have the biggest iPad possible. I have the 12.9 inch iPad Pro. Okay. Um, which I would never like want to do a PhD again, but it is a drag that the pencil, Apple pencil came out right at the end of my PhD. Cause that thing has totally changed like how I write and everything like that. But anyway, that's, that's my sort of main mobile computing device. I take it everywhere I go and I don't really carry around my old MacBook pro anymore. Yeah. Um, and I do have a 27 inch retina iMac at home, which is what I use for a lot of my sort of more intensive research and statistics stuff but my preferred device is definitely definitely my ipad yeah you know i've been talking a lot about the ipad lately on a show because it's just such a new interesting thing in my life but the um but i still need my mac i still work at my mac hours every day i I, i'm not i'm not in the camp that's ready just to give up on the mac that's for sure but like you totally go ahead even even the like keynote, which is a great great app on the iPad to do a lot of my more intense keynote stuff. I kind of need to use my my Mac for a lot of the transitions and recording and stuff. But I guess we'll talk about that later. Yeah, yeah. Are you uh, in your phone and a watch guy too? Right. Yeah, I've got the big the biggest possible iPhone as well, um, and I've got my Apple Watch. And like it's been, I guess, like a year since the watch came out, and there've been all these articles about how they're not. It's not that great, and. God, I just love it to death. I wear it every day and, you know, it's definitely limited and I get super frustrated at times, but geez, I use this thing like crazy. Tell yeah, me, uh, I agree with that. I think, go ahead, yeah. I think you have to have, um, we've talked about this on the show, so I won't dwell on it too much, but I think you just have to accept it for what it is and what you can do with it. Absolutely. Yeah, like what, it's been what do you totally amazing. For? Yeah, so most of my stuff is with fitness stuff. I use uh, I use the workout app and all that. I've been using a lot more third-party workout apps now since watchOS 2 and actually sort of the point releases since watchOS 2 have helped a lot to make it more stable. Um, I use that WaterMinder app to sort of keep track of how much water I drink because sometimes it's easy to just forget to drink any water at all and then it's like 4 p.m. and you have a throbbing headache. So I've been using that a lot. And there's a really nice app for working called Focus, which I've seen reviewed a couple times. It's kind of like a Pomodoro timer, you know, where you 
work for 25 minutes, then take a break, then work for 25 minutes. And it's got a really nice complication and it'll count it down on your watch and then tell you when to break. And then it's like always sort of there. Whenever you glance at your watch, you see how much time you have left. Wow, so those have been, thanks I think, for the main thing to use it for. Because I've been lately, um, I, I am under, um, between the legal and the Max Park set, I've got a couple really big things going on now. So I go into these phases where I work like for five or six hours and I had, I set a timer for like 50 minutes and then I go like take a walk or do something and then come back and work 15 minutes. I just been setting a timer. I don't have any kind of apps helping me out on that. I should check this out. What's it, what's it called again? Focus. Yeah, it's called focus. It's, it's, it's tough cause they're like 30 apps on the app store called focus, but yeah. this is like, it's like a white app icon. The, the font is in blue and it's got a really, really nice watch app. I'm really happy with it. We'll yeah, find we'll put it. a link to the show notes. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, so you're using some third-party apps. With my watch, I, I find generally I'm mainly using the built-in stuff. I'm using drafts because that's a pretty low bandwidth and easy to use third-party app and OmniFocus. But there aren't really too many more that have made the cut for me. Anyway, we actually didn't bring you on to talk about Apple Watch today. We want to talk about um, <laughs> how you're getting all this work done with your teaching workflows and your writing. Um, you want to just jump into it? Yeah, I think. Yeah, let's, sure. Let's let's talk generally. Um, one of the things that that I'm curious about is how you're able to use iOS so much. You talked about iOS um, in your teaching workflows, but also I think you mentioned that all of the notes that you've taken throughout your your PhD have been um, digital in some focus and primarily on iOS. So um, talk a little bit about doing that maybe from both a, a teaching standpoint and then also from a, a student standpoint as well. Sure, yeah. So I've been in this program for like five years. So there have been a lot of apps that have come and gone since then. Um, but if the app that's sort of always been there and is currently my favorite by a long shot is GoodNotes. Um, I wrote actually a pretty long sort of like love letter to good notes on my blog about why I like it so much. It's this fantastic just note taking app. It makes PDFs for you. It recognizes your handwriting. Um, and it's sort of a lot like notability in a lot of ways, though it doesn't actually record any, it doesn't record audio, but it's this really great app. Um, you can import a PDF or start from scratch. You, the handwriting engine is really nice. And what's great about it is that it's powered by MyScripts, you know, that engine that recognizes your handwriting. It uses that stylus app that David wrote about recently. Yeah. Um, it's a really, really good handwriting recognition app. And whenever you're writing on good, good notes, it's constantly sort of processing your handwriting and figuring out what you're saying. And the reason why I like this a lot more than a lot of handwriting recognition apps like, you know, Evernote and OneNote will recognize your handwriting. With GoodNotes, once you export a PDF and like send it to Dropbox or whatever, it'll embed that recognized handwriting into the PDF. So you can search the PDF in Preview, Adobe Acrobat, like whatever you need to. It makes it a normal PDF and there's selectable text and that text is your recognized handwriting. Even Spotlight, presumably. Yeah, it's really, it's really, really fantastic. So they've done a great job with that. Um, and there are reasons why I like that for teaching as well, but for just like note taking and stuff, I definitely recommend people to check that out. So you use it not only for teaching, but also when you're working on your dissertation research, for instance. Absolutely. It's kind of my go-to whenever I want to brainstorm something or if I'm in a meeting or if I'm taking notes on a paper, I'll usually open good notes. It's basically just like a notebook for me. Yeah. And it's only eight bucks. That's not bad. 
I put this up about six weeks ago because I've been working on kind of the, an idea about a post or maybe a screencast about note taking apps for for iPad, and and my experience with it is it is the best one for handwriting recognition. I had no idea they were using MyScripts engine, which now explains why. Because in, in so far, MyScript is MyScript has been really the best one, so they're using the same engine. I'm not aware though. Do they ha- they don't have a Mac app, right? They do. They do actually, and it used to be just a viewer for your GoodNotes notes because it all syncs over iCloud. But recently, like maybe in the past month, they've added actually you can draw, type, all that stuff too. Oh, that's great because that was the biggest selling point of notability for someone who works on both devices is that you could still work on the notes on your notability device. Yeah, so it's really good. I mean, the thing is, if if you are typing a lot. Notability is probably better because good notes, good notes, when you type text, you're like basically inserting text boxes. Yeah. Whereas with Notability, you're kind of just typing as though it was a word processor. So if you're typing a lot, maybe good notes isn't that great, though they've told me that they've been thinking about doing more rich text stuff. Um, but if you're annotating a PDF, especially with any kind of handwriting stuff, good notes is by far the best, I think. Yeah, it's the most free form. Like you can do just about anything, just about anywhere. Um that that there is a, that point you made though is it doesn't record and i think for a lot of people that may be a big deal yeah totally i mean i there was a while like i said in the past five years there was a while when i was switching to notability and recording all my lecture notes yeah. and then i started realizing like i was checking the last time i played a recording yeah. and it was basically never <laughs> yeah. so i think yeah Like for certain meetings, if I'm like meeting with my advisors and stuff like that, I'll use Notability or OneNote actually, which I can talk about, um, to record the audio while I type. But only if I'm like actually immediately after going to go back and listen and collate and make sure I'm doing everything right. Yeah, I wish they they would have recording in GoodNotes as well. But boy, it is it, it is a nice app. Now, how do you organize your notes from within GoodNotes? Because they have kind of an interesting notebook metaphor in the application yeah so you can make you make notebooks and you also have sections which are basically sort of folders um and so what i do is i have just a regular notebook just called notes and that's sort of my go-to scratch pad and i can copy and paste stuff from there to other notebooks if i want um but for teaching and for classes i have a separate section and so if i tend to have different documents for each lecture yeah. But what's another thing that's nice about GoodNotes is that if you have a, a notebook or, or PDF open and then you switch to something else and open that document in GoodNotes, it'll ask you if you want to just append it to the end of that page. Yeah. And so it's possible to just kind of like make a running notebook with all your notes from a given course or something like that. Now, do you share the the notes you're taking with like anyone that like on your dissertation that you're working with or with your students or is this entirely just for your reference? I do share it, though there is no way to collaborate or anything like that, but I do, I will share, you know, versions of the PDF that I'm making or even what's nice about GoodNotes is that you can literally select a bunch of drawing or text and just press copy and then paste it into an email and it'll paste as a very nicely rendered image. And so even just like little snippets of ideas or equations that I want to show people, I can just, without having to export a PDF page, I can just select and copy and put it into a mail message. Now, this app made a ton of sense to me because I, I kind of discovered it after I became enamored with my iPad Pro. I don't think it would have been interesting at all to me without an Apple Pencil. If someone's out there listening and they don't have the Pro with the Pencil set up, do you think it still makes sense to look at GoodNotes? I mean, I like 
I've been using GoodNotes for many, many years. Okay. Bless the developers. So, so, they have yeah. they have uh, supported like every Bluetooth stylus SDK that exists. Yeah, it's incredible how many they've done. I have never found those to be very useful, but for sure. I mean, if you're if you're interested in handwriting, if you think it's necessary, especially if you're any kind in any kind of quantitative discipline where you're writing down variables and equations a lot, so typing isn't as plausible. I think GoodNotes is a great thing to look at. Nice. Okay, well, that's a that's a great recommendation, and I think that works whether you're in school or teaching or in business or whatever. Um, so, so everybody, check that out. And uh, and I want to talk to you about some more of your setup for teaching. But why don't we just take a quick break to talk about our first sponsor? Our next sponsor for this episode is our good friends over at the Omni Group, and I want to talk a little bit today about Omni Outliner. If you're like me and you're one of those left brain people and your mind just thinks and works in the world of outline, then you're going to want to check out Omni Outliner. And Omni Outliner is the premier tool for Mac and iOS for outlining. It can store and collect all kinds of information about just about anything. You can get started using their built-in themes, and they've got a couple of different ones that you want to outline for a classroom, if you want to outline for a novel, if you've got a special project in mind. And Omni Outliner is feature-rich and flexible. You can use it for any number of tasks, from creating simple lists to outlining a speech to taking class notes or even writing a novel. You can start with a simple outline and then quickly add structure from there to beef up your outlines and go deeper. You can expand and collapse whatever you information you need so it's not so overwhelming and you can just dig in and focus on a very specific portion of your outline. And everything is accessible through keyboard shortcuts. So once you take the time to learn those keyboard shortcuts in Omni Outliner, you can really fly through it. And you can add more information to your outline by pulling in attachments and recordings and PDFs and more. You can even record audio while you take notes with an Omni Outliner for your future reference. Once you've got all this great information in Omni Outliner, you can share out your outlines by exporting it into a variety of formats. And all of this information can sync across any Mac or iOS device using OmniPresence. It's Omni Outliner's free and reliable open source tool. So your files are always intact and available. And they'll be waiting for you because Omni uses background app refresh. Uh, so you don't have to worry about going and making sure that everything is up to date. So there are two versions. There's a basic version, and then there's the pro version that brings some additional features and export formats, including things like Apple Script support, advanced style control, and more. I'm a big fan of Omni Outliner. I've used it extensively as I've been going back to school. I'm using it right now as I write my final research paper for my program, and it has just been a godsend. So if you want to check it out, I encourage you to try it and try both versions before you buy to make sure that you're getting the one that's right for you. Uh, Omni gives a two-week free trial of their programs, and you can go and download them by visiting omnigroup.com. And if for any reason you're not satisfied, they've got a 30-day money-back guarantee on all of their applications. And if you're a student or if you've already got a version of the Omni Group's applications, make sure you check out. They've got upgrade and educational pricing available. So go check out Omni Outliner and all of the great applications from our pals over at the Omni Group. And thanks, Omni, for your kind support of Mac Power users. So, Teddy, I know one of the big things um, that you do, both as a, a teacher and that I always appreciated as a student, um, was getting handouts. This is what we're going to be talking about. These are the notes. These. Are, this is where we're we're going today. Um, what about materials or uh, presentations or things like that that you're you're actually giving in class? Are you doing all of that on iOS as well? So right. So just to back up a little bit, the way that I do um, my teaching for statistics is with these handouts that are sort of 
Right. They're basically like handouts with a lot of blank space in them for exercises or things like that. Um, and so the, the idea is that they kind of give you the the rigidity of a slide presentation, like the structure of a presentation, while also giving you some interactivity and freeform stuff that can let students actually engage with what you're teaching. And so, right, I'm a big fan of the handouts that I use. Um, and I use that like almost 100% of my teaching is from sort of a handout. So um, I guess before I talk about how to actually make the handouts, once let's once I come into class with these handouts, what I generally do is I've printed them out for all the students and then I have it up on my iPad with GoodNotes and I'm airplaying that iPad via an Apple TV third generation revision A Apple TV. Yeah. Um, and, and so and it's, I, I if love you remember, this because in the notes like, you wrote out the exact revision number and then you said not a one four two seven so you gotta explain that to me well that means that you yeah, it doesn't have like the tap it and it sets up right or say that again th there was a later version of the v version three apple tv that would allow you to do presentations to it like without all this complicated setup is that what you're referring to no yeah, so so there are two there are two versions of the third generation Apple TV, and the only difference is that one of them has this thing called peer to peer AirPlay, where right. they don't have to be on the same network at all. Um, and so in a university setting, the network is kind of crazy, and oftentimes doesn't work with like sort of simple protocols. And so I have an Apple TV, and that I explicitly do not add to any networks so that it always defaults to peer-to-peer -peer because I found that to be much more reliable yeah. than even attempting to go through Harvard's existing network. Yeah. And just for the record, um, gang, that's A1469, <laughs> not A1427, if you're, if you're shopping. It's like the least Apple-y thing possible, right? Yeah, Make exactly. sure you look, you look for this exact serial number. It very for Sony it to, to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and a really nice thing that I like to do also is I'm lucky enough to teach in a room that also has sort of side monitors. And so for teaching reasons, I really like on the side monitors having sort of main concepts that are being illustrated in the handout so that if you're sort of getting into the nitty gritty of a proof or something like that and you want to see where you are, looking up at the side screens give you kind of this overview of where we're at in the lecture so far. Um, and so what I do is I plug in my iPhone into the side screens running a keynote presentation and then I put my iPad into split view and use the keynote remote app in the iPad to advance the side screens of the iPhone. All right. So let's break that down for a second. <laughs> so you've got a uh, you've got some type of connection to the t to the screens in the side of the, the class. And right. You, so I just plug that in. I hardwire that in with like, I think it's HDMI yeah, that no, I just plug in my iPhone directly into the side screen. No yeah, and, the, and the school has these Apple TVs set up. That's not something that you like bring in, right? I or, bring it in every time. Oh, you bring, well, you should just buy a new one then. <laughs> Fix this problem. <laughs> that's that's, well, a, nice that's about, a $69 problem solved. <laughs> that's true. Although the nice thing about having one device is I'm a big fan of just sort of walking around with my iPad while I teach. Yeah. Right. And having one device just sort of means that I can advance the thing on the side without having to run back to the podium where my iPhone is sitting. It's funny because I'd never occurred to me to use an iPad to advance slides on the iPhone. But that actually, <laughs> no, I mean, really, when you think about it, that could be a real good solution. Like if you walk in a room where they only have a hardwired connection, you know, where you don't have an Apple TV. So if you plugged in your phone through HDMI, 
and, but you wanted the benefit of your iPad and the size of the screen as you walk around the room, you could completely use your iPhone as the actual keynote driver. Smart. I like that. Yep. Uh, one, one, one question, like when I do presentations and this is one of my just control freak things, I usually don't like giving out handouts until after I'm done talking. Cause I always feel like if I give you a 20 page handout, I'm going to be talking about something on page three and you're going to be looking at page 20, you know, does yeah, that, I think it's a little different when you're doing technical teaching though. Well, does that ever, do you yeah. ever give pause or does it matter? Maybe with a student, especially some, if you're in Harvard, you're probably pretty focused on the professor. I would think, right. Eh, you'd be surprised. Yeah. Um, I do. I do think that not just having handouts, but having a lot of it be blank is very important to keeping people engaged because, you know, rather than just kind of like reading along with it as though you had, for example, a printout of slides, instead you're like writing proofs as I write them up and stuff like that. And so there's less of an incentive to just kind of like lose your place and skip ahead or go behind or whatever. So when you do these proofs, do you also uh, do those on your iPad with your pencil where they can watch or... How do you? Yep, I do, do it on my iPad with my pencil, um, and they write along with you know just pen and paper. And are you um, are you in actually, good notes for that or? Yep, always good notes. Interesting. Okay, and and so they see the remote app as well as um, good notes on on your iPad as you broadcast that. Yep, exactly. So I'm writing on it on the iPad, and it's just being projected to the the sort of main projector as though it was just kind of like a whiteboard, and then the side screens are sort of like the main idea of what we're doing at that point. And they're writing along with an identical version of my good notes handout. That's in paper. Your students must love you. I mean, really, that's really nice. I mean, to, to take that much trouble to set all that up for them. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's a really, I think it helps a lot. A lot of the time statistics can get kind of boring and, and there's some amount of like whiz bang that's I think useful. Um, Another really nice thing that that sort of happens with that is a lot of the time the blank space will be so that people can break out into groups and work on a problem. And what's really great, another thing about GoodNotes is that I can then sort of like walk around while they're working on it and snap a picture of somebody's sort of like answer and just embed that right in my GoodNotes PDF under where that problem should be. And we can just work based on their solution. Wow, that's that's pretty impressive. I like that. Yeah, and like GoodNotes has like on-the-fly cropping and all that stuff, and so it ends up being really nice. I think we're going to be uh, getting more into GoodNotes, Katie. This sounds sounds good. It sounds uh, like now, we need to. Uh, now, as you're walking around the room, how are you dealing with your iPad? I mean, are you holding like in your arm, or because you've got a pencil, you got the iPad, you got a lot going on. Yeah, so I've been I've been toying with this. It's like twelve dollars. It's a little strap that just kind of attaches to the back of your iPad Pro. And I just kind of slip my hand in there so it doesn't fall over. Um, that's sort of a little goofy thing about having the really big iPad. It feels a little silly compared to for a while I was teaching with a mini, then I was teaching with a 9.7 inch. And the big iPad is definitely what I prefer. But having that sort of hand strap to stabilize it is nice. And it's not too expensive either. Yeah, and that's working out OK. Yeah, it's been really good. All right. So, um, have we covered, so, so with good notes, you've got the handwriting recognition, you've got the, um, the ability to present basically, uh, from it. Um, you had, Oh yeah. And then what is it? The ability to lock the screen? What are you talking about? So a really, really nice thing about good notes is when it's projecting suddenly in the corner of your screen, you have a little lock icon. And what you can do with that is no matter how zoomed in you are or wherever you are on the page, 
you press that lock and then the screen that's being presented is stuck in that zoom level so you can then like zoom out or zoom in or go somewhere else in the page and all the students are going to see is that section so for example if you want to focus on just one problem you can fit the screen into that one problem and press the lock button and then you're no longer constrained by having to keep it exactly there yeah oh so you can move around on your screen but the students what they see is frozen Exactly. And that's super duper useful. And I mean, because I think a lot of the times what you're trying to do is just avoid distractions. And so like the fact that it doesn't even have like notability, if you project it, it shows all the little writing and drawing tools on the top bar and all that stuff. And in GoodNotes, it doesn't. And so just being able to say what you see in front of you is what we're focusing on. Don't pay attention to the fact that this is like a tablet from the future projecting wirelessly onto a projector. Yeah. Uh, that's, I think, a really helpful thing. Yeah. There's a, I use an app in the law practice, especially in trial work called TrialPad. And it, it, it's when you're presenting exhibits to a jury and it does the same thing. It allows you to lock a view and then you can like do all the, you know, twisting and zooming and everything to get it just the way you want. They don't see you going through all those steps. And it, to me, it's like, it's like a huge selling point because you don't want to, you want it to be like a magic show. You don't want to have them to watch you struggle to get something to work. Right. Right. Uh, um, you had some other small touches that you liked about good notes. Um, yeah. So one, one feature that I really like that I haven't seen anywhere else is in the eraser, you can toggle a setting so that you, when you let go of whatever you're touching on the screen with the eraser, it automatically selects the pen again or the highlighter again or whatever was last selected. So usually with an eraser, I'm just trying to erase a few strokes. So I tap the eraser, like scribble it for a while to get rid of what I want and then let go and I'm back in my pen. And when you're teaching and you're like trying not to get distracted by your tablet, it's really nice to just be able to snap right back to it. And not being, not being required to go back and then reselect the drawing tool, which, you know, it's common or you end up erasing more. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I'm surprised more apps don't have something like that. Cause I find it to be just enormously helpful. Yeah. I believe it. I believe it. So, so this is the, the method for teaching you go and you've got the side monitors, you've got the split screen iPad and you can walk around the room. And, and I really like the idea of, of taking pictures of an existing student solution. So everybody can see it. It's, it's basically like letting them write on the board, but it just takes a second. Yeah, exactly. It's super fast. And I think people like are happy to see their work up on the board and then you can annotate their images, right? You can say, well, this part isn't quite right. Or I like this part and you can just draw right on it. It's really nice. Now, do you share out when you're done? Cause you're going to have all this work product you created in the class. Does that get shared with the class as well? So I currently don't, unless somebody missed class and would really like it. The idea sort of being that part of part of the sort of pedagogical value of the handout is that people are sort of writing along with you and figuring stuff out along with you. Yeah. And the idea of like making this incentive where you can just kind of like throw out the handout and wait for me to post it. Yeah. Um, so I have it as a record and I refer back to it, but I don't always just share it immediately after. Nice. Nice. All right. So... So that's the the method in class. What about all the prep you do before you get there? Right. So so there are the handouts and there are the sort of side screens and videos and stuff. Um, For the handouts, it's pretty straightforward. I use my node usually to plan out my handouts to figure out what sections I want to do and what kind of questions I want to get answered. And then once the outline's done, I usually do things in pages and I use math type, which is this 
application that exists where you can insert equations into pages or Word documents or other sort of rich text uh, programs. And so I use that to make sure all my equations are nicely formatted. Um, a lot of the handout planning I have to do on my Mac, if anything, because I can't define styles on iOS. And I find that very frustrating if I want to like make all the headings a certain way. I can't really do that on iOS. I have right. to use the, the, the Mac. Yeah, it's, it's both Word and Pages are that way. It's like you can you can apply existing styles, but like if you want to say I want you know six points after every paragraph and the normal style, you can't do that. You got to go back to a Mac for that. And right. Exactly. I, I don't know why neither Microsoft nor Apple has tried to you know fix that because it doesn't seem to me like there's any reason why you shouldn't be able to 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 make changes to those styles. In fact, both yeah. both applications do let you add spacing and do let you change fonts and stuff inside the application. They just don't let you do that attached to a style, which is kind of weird. Uh, can I back up though? When you said you do planning in MindNote, is that just like like a like a, a mind map? You mean, or what are you doing in MindNote? Yeah, I pretty much sort of treat it as kind of an elaborate outline. I make a bunch of main nodes about what I want to do in that section, what I, what learning objectives I sort of have. And then I group them accordingly and make little sub branches. And what I eventually end up with is basically an outline of the, of the, of the section, right. Of the course I'm about, of the, sorry, lesson I'm about to teach yeah. where each header is the sort of section. And then I have sub things for explanatory text, for uh, exercises, for stuff like that. And it's a nice way to kind of get a top level view. Now, do you, do you do that collaboratively with anybody or that's just you on your own? That's pretty much just me on my own. I've worked with a professor who also uses MindNote a bit, um, and we go back and forth with it. But more often, I'll go to his office and project my iPad onto a screen in his office with MindNode, and we'll work on it just in the office together. Yeah, I do that with my clients when we're like planning a contract or something, some difficult transaction, and they love it. I mean, they just love that seeing that kind of basic planning it's a very uh, effective tool. Like even if you're like marketing or something and you wanted to sit down with a client and share it, um, it's just a really great way to give people an understanding of where you're heading with it. Now, how do you get the data out of my note and into pages? Usually I'll, so sometimes what I'll do, honestly, most of what I do is I'll just rewrite it. I know there are ways to get it out of it, but often in my note, they're just kind of ideas and then drafting it again in pages lets me sort of refine it. I have in the past exported my note as Markdown and then used this iOS app that turns Markdown into a Word document and then imported that into pages. But honestly, I just rewrite it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so once it's in pages, then I often will like go back and forth between my Mac and my iPad trying to sort of refine it and do different things with it. And one, actually one thing about pages that I learned like two weeks ago that totally really, really made me very happy is I'm a big fan of the trackpad mode on iPad where you, you know, tap and drag with two fingers to select text and move the cursor. Yeah. And I was super frustrated that I could not activate that when I had an external keyboard connected and I learned that actually you totally can. So in a lot of any app that uses like a, a sort of stock text input method, I don't know how to describe it, but like mail, notes, pages, yeah. um, Safari, all that stuff, you can actually two finger touch the screen of where the text is roughly like that area of text. And you can activate trackpad mode that way, even though you have an external keyboard attached. Yeah. And you just move your finger around and it moves the cursor. But it has to be, yeah. with, it has to be within 
the text field. You can't like go outside of the text field. At least in my experience, I never was able to get that work. Right. But man, that has been a really wonderful for me. I've been so excited by that and I had no idea it existed until very recently. <laughs> Unfortunately, it doesn't work with like, so Google Docs doesn't work. Most Microsoft apps don't work because they have some kind of custom text field implementation. But yeah. for the most part, it works pretty well with other apps. Anybody who thinks they can do it better, it doesn't work, basically. <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, but I it, think it, it was one of those things that like with iOS 9, you just got for free if you had been using the standard text view. I think that um, a lot of times you see this both on the Mac and the iPad where people... Um, they they decide they're going to do it better. Like Adobe, I don't know if they still do it or not. I don't have any Adobe apps currently installed, but they used to always rewrite the save and open dialog box on the Mac uh, because they felt like they could make a better open and save dialog box than the one that was built in. And it never was. And that's I get the same impression when people write their own keyboards for the iPad. It's like, why do you need to do that? Why can't you just use the one that Apple ships? Totally. Or uh, anyway, I'm sorry, text field. Um, interesting. But you still have to take your fingers off the keyboard. And, you know, there is still some interaction there, some cost. But that is definitely a lot You're easier. Right. So just for anybody who's yeah. listening, you, all you do is you take two fingers. You set it. It doesn't have to be even right on top of the cursor, just in the neighborhood. And you just put two fingers on and start moving them around. Now, I have to admit, though, with force touch on the iPhone, it's even better for me to to move the cursor by force tapping on the keyboard. Have you ever tried that? Oh man, once I tried it, I started doing it on a lot of other things. Yeah. <laughs> and it never worked. It only works on the iPhone. I know. I know. I'm going to like knock my <laughs> finger through the glass on my iPad one day. Kenny, do you ever use right. those features? Some of us don't have iPhones that can use Force Touch. I forgot. Or devices that can use Force oh. Touch. I think you well, haven't forgot. I think you just keep bringing it up. No, I actually did forget. <laughs> I, I totally did. But the um, but what about the two finger tap on the iPad? Because you got an iPad Pro now. Do you have you got that internalized yet? No, I don't think I have got it. So so on your keyboard next time you need to move oh, the cursor. Oh yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, but I don't use it that much. All right, all right. Well, I want to talk about, you also do, and I have it from good authority that you are at Harvard, one of the uh, premier professors because of your use of video in teaching. And I know we have a lot of teachers listening to the show, and I bet they'd like to hear about that. So I want to talk about uh, how you're using video right after this break. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Casper. Upgrade your mattress and get $50 off by visiting casper.com MPU and using offer code MPU. I love talking about Casper because I sleep on one every night. Not only is it a quality mattress, it's at a very affordable price because they've cut out the commission-driven inflated prices you get with the usual retail market. But first, let me talk about the quality of a Casper mattress. Casper has an in-house team of engineers, and they've spent thousands of hours developing the Casper mattress. It's obsessively engineered, and it's at a shockingly fair price. The Casper mattress combines springy latex and supportive memory foam to create an award-winning sleep surface that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine recently named it as one of the best inventions of 2015, and in fact, it's now the most awarded mattress of the decade. One of the advantages of the design is that it's very breathable and it helps you regulate your body temperature through the night. I sleep on one every night and I just love it. Casper also changed the mattress world with its pricing. The way mattresses sold in these retail centers is just nutty. Often you're going to spend over $1,500 for a mattress, but Casper mattresses cost just $500 for a twin size, 
$750 for a full, $850 for a queen, and $950 for a king. And they're made in America. Buying a Casper mattress couldn't be easier. You just go on the internet and order it, then they deliver it to you. The mattress itself comes in a box, and my wife and I were able to carry it upstairs by ourselves without knocking any pictures off the walls or breaking anything. Once we got in the room, we opened it up, and the mattress expanded to uh, sit right on top of our bed, and it's great. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and free returns, and they have a 100-night home trial. So you don't have to worry about going into a mattress store and trying to pick a mattress after laying on it for five seconds. Instead, spend a week or a hundred nights on it before you decide if you're going to send it back. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. Casper is a great company with a great product at a great price. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash MPU and using MPU as the offer code. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you so much to Casper for supporting the Mac Power users. So, Teddy, how, tell us, how are you using video in teaching your classes? So, a lot of the work that I do, especially with a professor that, that teaches the statistics course, is um, making these sort of preparatory videos that students watch before a lecture. So it's video and also some multiple choice stuff and everything embedded on a web page. But most of it is these animated videos that try to illustrate some statistical concept in a way that's clear um, so that once we actually get together, then we can sort of assume that everyone is on the same page with that very basic understanding and they can then get into more sophisticated applications of stuff. I guess a lot, a lot in a pedagogy, a lot of people call this flipped classroom where you're exposing people to what the lecture is going to be beforehand so that the lecture can be more of a collaborative, interactive thing. Um, so I make these animated videos and we can, I, I have them all sort of posted on my website and I think a hundred percent of them are made using keynote, even though they're pretty, I would say like they look like pretty nice animations and people ask me about where they come from and how I make them a lot and what software I use. And it's always keynote and people are kind of astounded by it. Um, I am a big, big fan of using keynote to make really sort of simple diagrams or visuals that then convey some concept I'm trying to explain. A big part of that is magic move, which David, you've written like a million times about in all your books and everything like that. Um, but the sort of the the main idea is to basically make it so that there's never a point where everything disappears from the screen. You always want to have some element that transitions to the next part so that when it's moving to its new place, you're seeing what you previously saw in a different context. I, I'll never um, that's forget, kind of the idea. I'll never forget the first time I saw Magic Move. It was like, I think it was 2009 Macworld. I mean, this goes back, but... I had always been doing, because I do lots of keynotes, and I had always been animating individual objects forever. I mean, I remember I had a case that involved water intrusion, and I was animating drops of water. And um, and it wow. was always super difficult. And it was at Macworld in San Francisco, and they had announced a new version of iWork. And they said, oh, we have this thing called Magic Move. And they had a deck of cards. They had like, you know, seven cards on the screen. And then they had another slide where the cards arrange themselves into like a poker hand and it would just one, it was one slide to the next and you in one slide, you have them messed up and the next one you just put them in order and then all you hit is magic move and it automatically puts them in order. And my head exploded. I knew this was going to be huge. And, um, and this is a great tool for anybody out there that wants to animate anything. 
all you have to do is make the slide with the objects in it. My my uh, my secret trick is a uh, command D. I just make one slide with the objects in it, then I hit command D to duplicate the slide, and then I arrange them however I want them, and just turn on magic move, and I just animated it. That was like a two it's hour crazy. process turned into about ten seconds. Yeah, like I think a lot of people think I'm much much better at Keynote than I am because. Magic Move is really, really easy to use, and you just turn the transition into Magic Move, you duplicate the slide, and you move stuff to where you want it to move, and then it's there. And it's not just objects like cards, images, it's also words, and even like scaling and spinning, it, it, just about anything you can do with two, with an with a, um, object, even if it's like text, it'll, it'll respect that as you go to the next one. Exactly. Crazy, crazy so yeah. I make I make these presentations that use Magic Move to to show some concept or something like that, and then I use Keynote's record presentation function to turn it into a video that I can then export. Um, and record presentation is really nice because you you get this interface that looks like presenter view when you're like doing a presentation of the slide, the next slide, and all that, and your presenter notes, and then yeah. you just press record and you talk and go through it pressing next whenever you want to press next and it records all of that. And then you can just export that as video. I think we could do like a whole show on things you can do with keynote that don't involve presentations because, um, it, it, it does so much like even just like for video animation stuff, like you're using it or uh, video production, it's a really powerful tool. I mean, you don't necessarily need the whole Adobe suite when you're doing basic animation stuff. Exactly. And then even like, you know, recording and getting everything to sync up the way you want, that works great too. One one sort of frustrating thing about using the record presentation thing is if you decide that you want to change something about how you said something or somewhere that you messed up, um, it's going to, from the point where you press record to the end of the presentation, clear whatever recording already exists there. Yeah. And so it's not nonlinear editing. It's It's basically push, go and start talking. Right. And so often what I'll do is I'll, I'll record it as best as I can in Keynote, and then I'll export it and use an app like ScreenFlow to then, you know, insert other audio or freeze the slide at a certain point if I want to make it last longer and stuff like that. Nice. Now, do you, I, I have never even looked, I don't think you can do uh, the record presentation on the iPad. This is just on the Mac, right? Yeah, you can't use it at all. And you could, like, it's technologically possible. It doesn't have, you know, you just plug in a mic or even use the microphone and do it. So I don't know. And I've noticed if you have a keynote presentation in iCloud that has a recording sort of embedded in it, when you play it on an iPad, it asks if you want to play the recorded presentation. So it, like, knows that there's a recording there. You just can't make a new one. Another good use for the record presentation, I heard an email once from a listener who did sales presentations. And he would make a deck and then talk through it and he would send it to the customer and they could watch the video. And I know that's not the same thing as being in the room, but if they're across the country, it's a lot better than just sending a deck with no words attached to it, no recording attached to it. Um, I I just don't think a lot of people realize that's there, but you can make a very nice little video uh, just from within Keynote. So you do this for every I didn't know that that was there until I started looking at the outline for the show, honestly. I think we talked about this before, Katie. Yeah, I don't pay attention to you. Have to okay. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Got me. All right. Um, so, so yeah, so I now, mean, you can, Teddy, you, you can do this for check. every class. I don't, I only do it. So 
I've taught this class for a couple of years, and each year we make new videos for a different concept, thinking of ones, the sort of ideas, what is, what are we currently doing in class that it's a waste of time in that you could just be doing it at home instead of doing it in class? And we yeah. try to turn that into some animation. And I'd say that there are some things that are much better explained via these videos and these animations than doing anything in class. And so, yeah. I mean, if you have any interest at all on anything about statistics, you can check out some of these videos on my site. I star the ones that I think are particularly, I guess, like illustrative of what you can do with Keynote. Um, and the idea is just like anything that's easier to see in terms of the sort of visual imagery that you can then replay or slow down or speed up to understand better, that should be a video. And so we just do it that way. Have you ever thought about taking some of the stuff that you've put together? Because, I mean, you've... you you've really got this all, you could almost take all of this stuff and put it together into a package and making like an iTunes U course or, um, you know, something like that. I mean, that would be pretty cool to have a, a statistics class on iTunes U from Harvard taught by Teddy. Well, thank you very much. There, there is a statistics class on iTunes U taught from Harvard. That's really, really good, I should say. But um, that said, I have thought a lot about what to do with these things right now. So these videos are on YouTube, and for this course, what we do is we embed them in a thing called edX, which is an online course platform that we use for the students to sort of also get quiz questions and text and stuff like that. And we're thinking about seeing what we can do with it after that, because I think a lot of this stuff is pretty helpful. And what's nice is that each video is kind of the self-contained package that you could then kind of build modularly over time to create a bigger course. That's kind of the hope anyway. Nice. Nice. And, you know, it, it's it's where this stuff needs to go is, is really what it is. Now, just yeah. just on the, technic, the technical side, what format are you using for your videos when you're exporting them and, and putting them up? Oof. Um, I want to say MP4. Is that right? Yeah. Or .mov. It depends. I was just curious. I think it's MP4. Yeah. Like, are you exporting for iPad? Uh, I see what you're saying. So I export it. Yeah, I export it as... 1080p in whatever the slide format is, and the, the, the slide um, aspect ratio is, and then I edit it in ScreenFlow and export it to YouTube. So, yeah, it's just a 1080p video. I've been thinking a lot lately about, you know, video um, export modes because we it's always been kind of a given that you don't want to make it bigger than 1280-720 for, you know, kind of teaching or screencasting type stuff. And now the devices are getting such higher resolutions, it's tempting to go bigger, but then there's always somebody out there that doesn't have the big resolution, and then there's the bandwidth problem. So once you start really cranking it up, it can cost somebody a lot of money if they're, you know, someplace where they're paying for the bandwidth. It's it's a tough call, because now that it's technically possible to make really high-resolution video, you feel like, well, why wouldn't I? But then there actually are quite a few reasons why you wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm I'm relying a lot on YouTube's sort of natural um, resolution picker, right? Where it, like, depending on your bandwidth, it picks a different resolution. But that's kind of the only thing I'm relying on. Have you ever heard from anybody out there in the internet land who's not in your class that's, like, getting hooked on these videos you're making? I bet you probably do. Yeah, actually, a lot of times I'm just answering questions about how I made them. And they're, like, asking what fancy animation suite I've used yeah. to make them. And so usually I just explain that it's Keynote. Um, well, now you can just yeah, I'm hoping this episode. That, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but, yeah, having them available on my site and on YouTube is definitely, I think a lot of people have come across them and asked me about them, which has been really nice. 
Nice. All right. Well, Teddy, I want to move into um, your writing and research stuff. Uh, Katie, should we take a break or you want to just keep going? Yeah, let's take a break here. That'll give us a clean pathway all the way in. So I want to take a brief moment to talk about our sponsor, Igloo, the internet you'll actually like. So with Igloo, you don't have to be stuck at your desk to do your work. You can manage your task list from your desktop during a meeting. You can share status updates from your phone as you're leaving a client site. You can access the latest version of a file from your home in your pajamas, if that's what you want, or the sleep night shirt that David's going to talk about. Uh, nobody's going to know. And everything is mobile, so why shouldn't your work be too? If you've ever looked at your corporate intranet and thought, my goodness, whoever designed this must truly hate me, well, those days are over. Igloo allows you to make the intranet look and feel like a place you actually want to be. It's amazingly configurable, and you can completely rebrand it to give it the look and feel of your team. Thanks to things like group spaces, role-based access permissions, an easy drag-and-drop widget editor, you can reorganize the whole platform so it fits exactly how your teams work. With our mobile lives, people are increasingly bringing outside applications into the companies, and sensitive documents are getting scattered across multiple platforms. That can cause a lot of problems if you're not careful, but not if you use Igloo. Igloo allows you to integrate services like Box, Google Drive, Dropbox into one big, easy-to-secure platform. So if you've heard the buzzwords like 256 encryption, single sign-on, active directory integrations, don't worry about that because Igloo just takes care of it and you'll know how safe and secure Igloo is. With Igloo, you can share files with your coworkers. You can all collaborate them on together. You can keep track of who has read what with read receipts. And this can be a super powerful tool for making sure that your critical information has been seen, making sure is keeping everyone in the loop, and you know what is happening with your team. It's time to break away from the internet that you hate. So go ahead and sign up for Igloo right now. You can try it for free for any team of up to 10 people for as long as you want. So if you've got a small group, you may never have to pay for Igloo. But we're hoping that you'll incorporate it with your bigger team and they can find the advantages too. So you can sign up over at igloosoftware.com slash macpowerusers. That's igloosoftware.com slash macpowerusers. So thanks so much to Igloo for their support of Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. So are you using iOS as well for the majority of, of writing and researching? Because I, I can see where it would be great for writing, but I, I don't know about all the researching stuff. So tell us how you're doing it. So my researching, I would say, is, is a combination of iOS and OS X. For all, all the analysis I do and the statistics is pretty much 100% on OS X. So that's just because, you know, the application I use, Data, is not available on iOS. Although I do use apps like Textastic and stuff to change some of my Stata code when I'm sort of editing it and trying stuff out. Um, but yeah, that's all done on OS X. One of the ways that I'm able to switch between them so easily is by using iCloud Drive. And I say that very hesitantly because I think a lot of people don't really like iCloud Drive. But I'm actually a very, very big fan of it. Um, and that may be because I haven't gotten burned by it yet, but right now, pretty much everything except for a specific set of text files that I'll explain later is in iCloud Drive right now. You know, so I think the, you're the first person to come on and say that. I mean, most people uh, go to Dropbox first because they have revisions and some other things. Uh, so tell yeah, us why so, you're on iCloud. 
The main reason I'm on iCloud Drive is just because ever since the document provider stuff happened in iOS 8, it's just been so easy to open and edit stuff on iOS and have it sync back to my Mac. And honestly, if Dropbox had just gotten on the bandwagon and made a document provider that can open and edit stuff directly in iOS, I probably would never have switched to iCloud Drive, but they didn't, and so I did. And I find that iCloud Drive works really well with um, package-based files. So like a lot of Omni's files, for example, are sort of folders with things appended to them. And a lot of apps that are document providers like Google Drive and OneDrive see those as folders, whereas iCloud Drive sees those as files. Yeah, And I wanted to stop and explain for people, because I'm sure some people are scratching their head right now about being a document provider. So when iOS, Uh, you know, for years, Apple's whole theory was, oh, we have your problem solved. You just keep it in the application and there is no file system. And that's the way it's going to be going in the future. And that was their vision. And it didn't really work because it didn't really latch on for people. Last couple versions of iOS, particularly iOS 9, they have enabled what they call document providers. And that is uh, there can be third party services like iCloud. Well, that's not third party, but there can be, you know, there can be third-party locations that your apps can see and iCloud is one of them Dropbox is one of them box is one of them there's there's several companies and services that have tied into this but they don't all necessarily work the same and some of them allow you to open and edit the files iCloud I think is probably one of the better ones at this where you can open it in place edit it and not move it out and others are a little more sketchy like like with Microsoft Word it allows you to open a Dropbox file in Dropbox, edit it and save it to Dropbox without having to like pull the file out. But with pages, it does not do that. With pages with Dropbox, you have to make a local copy of the file and then go back into iCloud later. So you end up with that problem where you have two versions of the file. Is that is that what you're talking about, Eddie? I'm Teddy. Gosh, yeah. dang it. Sorry, Teddy. <laughs> no problem. That's exactly what I'm talking about. One and once you get used to just opening and editing and not making a zillion copies, when you open from one app to the other on iOS, it's really hard to go back. Yeah. It, it feels like suddenly being in quicksand when it's like, wait, I have to open and so now I'm going to have a copy in my iCloud drive and a copy on Dropbox and which one is the master and it, it very quickly becomes a problem. Right. Exactly. Um, so that's the main reason why I like iCloud Drive. A lot of the problems that I had with iCloud Drive actually don't seem to be as big problems as I thought they were. Okay, so, so let's go through those. Like, okay, the first one that I was worried about for a long time was if I delete a file, it's dead, it's gone. And recently, as in the past couple of months, on the iCloud.com website, you can it has a list of all of your deleted documents from the past like 90 days or something, and you can restore them. So there actually is this way to restore deleted iCloud documents that you deleted from your device. And see, Katie, this is the one I got to learn as we were prepping the show, because I had no idea this existed. But And it's weird that you have to go to the website to do it. But, but I bet not for long. Yeah. Yeah, I'm hoping that that's the thing that they fix. So, so it's not really um, versions, but it is reversions. You can re- you can return something from the dead. Yes. Now, when it comes to versions, this is a thing. I, I like did a lot of research into this before I came on the show because I wanted to make sure I wasn't crazy, and I did a bunch of tests with friends of mine as well. Thank you, Ben, if you're listening. Here's the thing: it's basically possible to maintain server side versions of iCloud Drive documents in the same way that Dropbox has a version history. All right, you're going to have to explain that for me, because I didn't know that either. 
How yeah. You so if you if you have uh, any document in iCloud Drive, any of any kind, not necessarily iWork, it could be a PDF, it could be a text file, whatever, and you do some edits on it on any device, event when you want to go back to previous versions, if you open that document in any OS ten app that has a browse all versions menu item so when you go to file usually it says Ah. file revert to and then browse all versions and what you get is a time machine interface where you can browse previous versions on your time machine or local previous versions what's weird is that if you have it on iCloud and you're not connected to any time machine devices but you are connected to Wi-Fi what you get is the time machine interface but the thing on the right has a little cloud icon that says load version and it will load (laughs) a version from iCloud of your stuff. And so it's using the interface that we're used to for local and time machine versions, but to take iCloud drive versions. I had no idea this existed. It's totally bonkers. And I can't find any reference to it in Apple's documentation, which is what, so I'm like hesitant to recommend it because I guess that means that they could take it away at any moment. Yeah. But, but what it probably means it's is there, something they're testing and trying to figure out before they, they, you know, open up the floodgates. Yeah. It's so, so like, just try it like on any, any document you've been editing in iCloud drive of any kind, uh, open it in an app that has browse all versions while it's not connected to time machine. And you can see this load version interface. It's nice. Now, do you see the interface if you are, I guess if you're connected to time machine, that's going to be there anyway. It's just going to be part of the time machine backup. Right. I have in the past seen the load version thing alongside time machine versions. Cause I guess there was a point where I'd made an iCloud drive update that hadn't gotten backed up the time machine yet or something like that. So they do intersperse them. Well, it's interesting because you know, you're getting a terabyte of, um, of, iCloud storage now for I believe it's ten dollars a month, and mm-hmm. I, I, that is a little bit more. It's one hundred and twenty dollars a year, and I believe I I believe Dropbox is a hundred dollars a year for a terabyte, so it's twenty dollars cheaper. Um, yeah, they're, they're in the same ballpark, I guess is what I'd say. So right, uh, and, and I do think that the point you make about it being more integrated on iOS and being able to edit documents in place. That is a huge benefit. That to me, that's almost more of a benefit than having version history. Yeah, no, absolutely. And on iOS now, it looks like apps specifically can integrate this ability to browse versions. So I were all of iWorks apps l- let you have this browse versions interface on iOS where you can look at previous versions. My node, even before iWork added that so you can browse versions on iCloud and my node. Yeah. Um, but those guys I, are always like on top of it. You know, that's one of those teams that's just always at the edge. You know? Yeah. I had Apple too. It was pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, and then this past week or two weeks, IA writer added that. So if you use IA writer and you have documents in their iCloud container, you can now browse versions on iOS. Oh. Well, there's hope. There's hope. Yeah, I'd like to think so. It's pretty nice. I mean, so the, here's here's some downsides. Well, here's the main downside to the doc, to the version thing I said. Um, Microsoft Documents, if you opened Word 2016 on your Mac, it has a browse versions kind of menu item, but it's not the Apple version. It's Microsoft's own version where if your document is in OneDrive, it'll give you versions. So... Microsoft Office apps don't actually have that browse all versions menu command. Of course, that goes back to our discussion earlier. You know, they're not going to use the right. built and they're going to do something different. Exactly. So instead, if you, there's an app called Neo Office that's basically like 
it'll open and edit Microsoft Office files. One of their like headlining features is they have a browse all versions button. And so you can actually look, I've looked at uh, previous versions of Word documents on iCloud Drive using NeoOffice. It's like wow. you have to go to a third party app to get to the different versions. <laughs> yeah, it's it, totally nuts. Now on iOS, because I haven't tested this and this is probably a dumb question, but Microsoft Word can edit in place on iCloud documents. Sure. Yeah, so on um, on Office apps on iOS, if you tap more under the in the open menu, there's OneDrive, Dropbox, iPad, sure, and then there's more, and that'll let you open and edit a, a DocX thing in iCloud Drive. Have you found any apps that don't allow you to edit in place with iCloud, or is iCloud the one that works everywhere? I'm trying to think of an. I can't think of an example of it not working. With the one exception being this latex stuff, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah. Um, and that's what I keep on Dropbox. But everything else, I've had no problems at all opening iCloud Drive yeah, stuff. I'm going to have to go back and do some testing with iCloud because I, I do a lot of stuff in Dropbox because, you know, in my head, I'm thinking versioning and just more stable. But iCloud's come a long way, so it may be worth a try. What about you, Katie? Are you going to go over to iCloud and give it a shot? I use iCloud for certain things, but... I, I gotta say, I'm I'm still kind of in Camp Dropbox for for a while, and you know they've they're kind of teasing this Project Infinite thing, and I think that makes a, a Dropbox if you don't already have one a, a Dropbox subscription look look really really interesting. Yeah, um, I'll tell you though that one problem Eddie, uh, Teddy has is with the um where you want to do something on iOS and you have to make a copy of it in the app. That makes Dropbox, it makes, it makes me crazy every time I deal with it because I hate the idea of having to, I just wanted to like, for instance, I have some of my, um, my envelope forms of all things, you know, on iCloud and I wanted to print some envelopes downstairs and I would open up my iPad. That should be easy, right? You access the envelope in Dropbox and in their Dropbox storage and you say, okay, go ahead and print it. No, it's going to make a copy of the envelope into your <laughs> iCloud drive. And now you've got your iCloud drive getting all this junk in it just because it can't edit or work with something in place. And, um, and that is a problem for me. So I'm going to look into it. All right. Um, so you, um, we talked about my a little bit earlier in terms of coursework. Do you also use my on the research end? Yeah, I have this monster mind map of my entire dissertation that I currently edit. Um, that's just absolutely huge. And kudos to the MyNode folks for making it completely stable, even though there are like a zillion different nodes and subnodes and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I definitely use, I just am a very visual thinker. Um, I've tried using Omni Outliner for a while. I have Omni Outliner and I can't quite get it to help me think through projects in the way that I'd like it to. Maybe I'm not using it for what I should be using it for, which is like more robust outlines. But for planning stuff, my note is definitely what I use for both writing and teaching. Yeah, I really think it's like two different problems. You know, there's an outline problem and there's a mind mapping program problem. And like a dissertation outline yeah. to me is a mind mapping problem. Because you're yeah, probably, you know, I remember constantly in motion, probably. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, there's this post that you wrote a really long time ago called, I think it was Dancing with OPML. And it was about how you can switch between MindNode and Omni Outliner for, with OPML documents because they can both read those. Yeah. Um, Omni Outliner does a really good job of opening and editing OPML files without making a separate Omni Outliner document. And MindNode doesn't yet. I think... Right now, that's a big thing that's preventing that, like it creates duplicates, right? Because right now on iOS, if you want to switch between MyNode and Omni Outliner, you have to open it in the other app. Yeah. 
Um, and I'd like it if both could just open and edit an OPML file. Yeah, good point. All right. Um, well, you're an academic, and we've got now something like an hour into the show, and nobody has talked about LaTeX. How did that happen? <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, it's a failed? thing that scares a lot of people. <laughs> people get very, very nervous when we talk about that. But I think LaTeX. a lot of people don't um, understand what it is. Yeah, so a thing... So, yeah, give us a high uh, level of... For for people who haven't heard the other people we've had on Mac Power users talk about it, give us a high level of what LaTeX is. Sure. So, first of all, I have no idea how to pronounce it. I say LaTeX, people say LaTeX, some people say LaTeX. I have no idea. I'm going to say LaTeX, and I'm sorry if that's wrong. Um, The way that I think about it, which really helped me early on, was HTML is plain text code that renders websites. LaTeX is plain text code that renders PDFs, publication quality PDFs. And so all LaTeX is, is a a typesetting language where you can specify, just like with HTML, you can make things bold or headers or whatever. On LaTeX, you can do the same thing. It's just a different code that is more oriented toward math and equations and also toward like very, very specific formatting of a specific PDF file. So that's kind of the main top level difference between the two. And, and math um, people love it. Math people math love, people love it because yeah. it's a it's a plain text language to render really nice equations. Yeah, and so you can use this just plain text like on any application that you have, and then you put it through a LaTeX processor, and it gives you a beautifully like textbook formatted equation. It's really, really nice. I believe one of our shows with Eddie Smith, we went into it for like 45 minutes. We, yeah, we went into quite a bit of detail. Yeah. So, awesome. so, so tell us, and we're going to, we're going to link that in the show notes. So go, go listen to that show if you want. Um, but I want to hear Teddy's take on it. I mean, how are you pulling off LaTeX on, as someone who uses both a Mac and an iPad? Yeah, so one one way that I used for a while is that in the same way that Markdown is kind of like a, a pared down HTML, Flesher Penny's multi-markdown has extremely robust LaTeX export abilities. So you actually can make LaTeX quality things in just multi-markdown and then send them through a LaTeX processor and get a really nice publication. So it simplifies um, it so even for a more. While, it's like a, a, yeah. a simple language for the simple language. <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah. So in, in like Fletcher's multi-markdown specification, there's so much stuff about figures and references and footnotes and stuff. So actually multi-markdown, which a lot of people use for blogging nowadays, has a really great LaTeX uh, uh, specification. So that's what you're doing. So what are you writing in? So the the app that I use most often, and it has both an OS ten and iOS uh, app, is called TechPad, T-E-X-P-A-D. Um, it's a really nice application on both. It auto-completes commands. It, if you have a bibliography uh, that's linked into your LaTeX document, it'll auto-suggest citations when you start typing an author's name and stuff like that. It's a really, really robust, great application. For the longest time, and I think even now, the iOS version of TechPad is not iPad Pro optimized, which made it very frustrating to use. But I'm happy to say that I've been beta testing a version of it for a bit that's going to come out very soon. And you get full split screen functionality of TechPad on iOS. And when I say split screen, I don't just mean multitasking. I mean, you can have your LaTeX code on the left side of the screen and your PDF on the right side of the screen. And it updates as you type. It's I, really great. I, I don't know when the last time was I felt like such an entitled computer user 
But I get so upset with app developers as an iPad Pro <laughs> user that doesn't have the, the proper keyboard and split screen. It's like it, it just enrages me now. And I <laughs> it's really not fair because I know some of these guys are really struggling to, you know, make a living and trying to figure it out. But but man, when I have an app that does not support it now that I have these fancy iPad Pros multiple, yes, I know. And, um, no but when they don't support it, boy, doesn't it just make you nuts? Yeah, I think that that frustrated me a lot early on with the big iPad Pro is I would say this looks like a blown up 9.7 inch version of the app. And they'd say, what do you mean? Send me a screenshot. I'd send them a screenshot and they'd say, this looks fine. This is exactly what it's supposed to look like because they didn't have an iPad Pro to look yeah. at it with. Yeah, And so it looks perfectly fine, but on a 12.9 inch iPad Pro, it looks ridiculous. I, I, I used to, my, uh, my grandmother, we bought her, I remember a remote for her TV and it had these massive buttons on it. You know, like the, you know, like the one through the digits were like huge so she could hit them. Yeah. That's what I feel like typing on the iPad Pro with a, with an app that does not have the updated keyboard. It feels like it's the old big button remote control. Totally. All right. So TechPad is definitely the way to go. TechPad is working it. And then, then on iOS, you had a couple other apps you had mentioned in the prep that I thought may be worth uh, talking about. TechTastic. I've never heard of it. Yeah. So, so TechTastic is a, is a code editor. I think it's like initial thing was for like JavaScript and Ruby programming and stuff. It's like the closest, I think it's the best iOS code editor. A lot of people really like it. What's nice is that it actually supports LaTeX languages Sorry, the language of LaTeX. So you can open a file in Textastic and do a lot of editing and it'll, you know, highlight the syntax correctly and all of that. So before TechPad was updated, I was using Textastic for a while to do all of this editing, which is very nice. Now, you also um, you also do a lot of work with PDFs. I do. So to transition away from LaTeX, I maintain my bibliographies with LaTeX. It's the specifications called BibTeX. Um, which basically just gives you a really big text file with all your reference information in it. And I have, there's a, oh, there's a free app on OS 10 called, um, BibDesk that will, it's basically like EndNote. It'll show you all your references and you can sort your PDFs and all of that. So I use BibDesk to maintain my references and the PDFs for each of those references, I get to automatically sort into my PDF expert iCloud library. Yeah. And PDF expert is your weapon of choice on iOS, correct? Yeah, it's just it's just the best. It's so great. Um, They they update their stuff for the newest APIs and stuff very, very quickly. It's indexed really well. So you can just in the same way that on my Mac, I can just spotlight search for a PDF and press enter and it'll open on iOS. I can just spotlight search like from the main spotlight interface for any PDF name. And I'll just tap it and it'll open in PDF expert. It's like such a great seamless thing. And they've also tied in with the ability to uh, kind of turn it into a document source, the app itself, just like Dropbox, almost like PDF expert can become a document source. So if you're using it that way, you're probably getting quick access to your documents there as well. Totally. Yeah. It works really well as a kind of a local container that you can store stuff in without having to worry about a cloud service. Nice. Nice. And then you had also mentioned Goodreader, which was kind of a blast from the past. That's the first PDF app I bought for the iPad. And um, I think it was one of the first apps I ever bought for the iPad as well. It's been around forever and it kind of looks like it's been around forever. It's not exactly the prettiest interface. Um, you know what? It's a lot still... better, though, because I went back because I, I had kind of given up on it because the user interface was so t- was so horrible. And I went back and they've really cleaned it up a lot. 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's a lot better than it used to be. I hear they're working on a new version, but in the meantime, this one's optimized for iPad Pro. And because of document providers, I can just open a PDF that I have in the PDF Expert iCloud folder in Goodreader if I happen to like Goodreader's features for the particular use I'm thinking of. Yeah. And the other thing Goodreader does is it's like an an open anything application on your iPad. I recently had someone send me a... um a um a zipped file which i have apps that will open that for some reason they weren't working i went ahead, that's what led me to download goodreader because i remembered it can open anything and it, it could open the zip file that no other app could open and um <laughs> you know i don't know you know it's just something was weird but goodreader figured it out and um it's almost like a utility app now do you do pdf yeah. editing in goodreader or do you how you know how do you use that versus pdf expert so it's got pretty much the same suite of tools as PDF Expert does, highlighting, commenting, drawing, uh, strikeouts, and stuff like that. It, it's pretty much interchangeable, which is really nice because depending on the kind of document I want to use, I can use one or the other, and it all is def- is like fully cross-compatible. And because you have it so on iCloud Drive, it edits in place, so it's you actually just are working on the same file every time you open it. Exactly. And then I can open it and even preview. I mean, there's a PDF expert app for Mac, but I can even use preview and all of those annotations are totally editable in preview. It's really nice. Nice. Now, Teddy, Um, go ahead. Just one quick thing. One nice thing about Goodreader with the iPad Pro is that they have a two page view that PDF expert doesn't. So if you have a PDF that has like relatively large text, you can open it in a Goodreader, put it in two page view, and it's just like a really nice big interface. One of the things that I wanted to make sure that we we talked about before we lost you here today is, um, you know, researching and be, like, don't you? I'm sure you have to do some kind of big final paper or thesis or or, or something like that for your your PhD program. And this was actually something that I just wrapped up for for my master's program. And I'm not sure I did it very well, honestly. I just kind of wanted to get through it and defaulted and punted and, and wrote the great majority of it in, in Microsoft Word and, you know, threw some of my my content into Evernote. And, and kind of at the end of it, I felt like, well, that wasn't very Mac Power users of me, was it? I just didn't didn't take nearly as good advantage of, of some of the tools that are available for that. Um, and I'd like to hear how you're doing that. But let's take our last sponsor break and we'll get into that in just a few minutes. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Linode. Go to linode.com slash MPU to get $20 credit on your own hosted server. The days when companies needed to buy their own multi-thousand dollar server to keep in their office to keep things running is over. Technology has advanced to a point where you can have a company like Linode put together a server for you on the internet and completely manage it from your office or your home. Linode offers a combination of high-performance SSD Linux servers spread across eight data centers around the world, and this makes Linode a fantastic solution for your server infrastructure. You can get a server up and running in under a minute with plans starting at just $10 a month. With Linode, you'll be able to choose your resources, Linux distro, and node location right from the manager tool. And once you're up and running, you can easily deploy, boot, and resize your virtual server with just a few clicks. The Linode servers themselves are top of the line. They use industry-leading native SSD storage, powerful Intel E5 processor, which is the fastest you can get in a cloud market, by the way, and they have access to a 40-gigabyte network with multiple levels of redundancy. Linode even has its own API, so you can easily automate tasks or develop custom applications right in the cloud. Their pricing is great. Each tier features hourly billing and a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backup and node balancers. 
They've got over 400,000 customers who are all serviced by their friendly 24-7 support team. They're even open on holidays. The team at Linode is committed to improving their infrastructure. For example, they recently implemented a bunch of changes that gave the latest Unix benchmark a 300% performance increase. If you're thinking about buying your own server or going somewhere else, I really encourage you to check out Linode. They're great for features like running your own personal Git server or hosting a large database on the internet. A lot of companies use it to run their mail servers and other people use it to operate powerful applications. There's just so much you can do with a server on the internet. As a listener of the show, if you sign up at linode.com slash MPU, that's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash MPU, you'll not only be supporting us, but you'll also get $20 towards any Linode plan. And with a seven-day money-back guarantee, there's nothing to lose. So go to linode.com slash MPU to learn more, sign up, and take advantage of that $20 credit. Or use the promo code MPU20 at checkout. Thank you so much to Linode for supporting the show. Uh, so, Teddy, how are you handling, you know, collecting your research, organizing your research and doing all of that good stuff? So it's funny to hear that you said that you just kind of like powered through it because I think that's the way you're supposed to do it. Instead, I just take very long breaks. I, I just wanted to be done with it. Right, exactly. Yeah. I take super long breaks where I'm like, maybe this note-taking platform is what I need to use. How do I shift all of my notes from one to the other? <laughs> Rather than write the paper, how can I spend three weeks working on the workflow? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So I'm, I'm, I'd say I'm pretty happy with my workflow. Mine was by no means a thesis. It was just a, a significant paper, you know, so it was about 40 pages and all, but not, not, not any, nothing I did defend or anything like that. Sure. So um, much to my surprise, the app that I use to maintain all my research notes is Microsoft OneNote. I, you know what, that's not that shocking to me. You know, I mean, I, I think we've all come around to the fact that Microsoft is making some pretty good software these days. They really, really are. I just, I mean, there was a while when I was switching between, I was switching between Evernote and other apps like that. And eventually I settled on OneNote. And I mean, the reason is that it's, I think, the most flexible app on iOS and OS ten for sort of basically like a canvas, right? Like a OneNote note can go on forever in any direction. It has different objects in it. It doesn't have to follow a linear sort of like text-based uh, flow. And so you can move stuff around. You can handwrite. What's really nice is that even on iOS, you can insert documents. You can insert any kind of file into OneNote on iOS. And so for my research, very often I'm attaching some file, maybe a data set, maybe some kind of code, and I'll be able to just pick from the iOS document providers. And in this case, that includes Dropbox because you're not editing, you're just importing. And you can just stow a bunch of stuff in there for whatever you need. So every day I fire up OneNote and I date that note and I fill it with whatever I work on that day. Thoughts of how things are going. If I figure out some statistical code that's been going well, I'll paste that in there and annotate it. I'll add files or PDFs or websites. It works really, really well. The handwriting engine is good on iPad, and you can search the handwriting that you write, which is great. And on OS ten, not yet on iOS, but on OS ten, if you record and type, it'll sync up your written notes with your recorded notes. On iOS, once you do that, on iOS, you can do the same thing. You can play a file and jump to where it is in that recording, but you can't make a recording and and type on iOS yet. But that has to be coming. I mean, if it exists on the OS 10 version, it has to be coming to iOS because that's where it makes the most sense. 
Yeah, part of what I like about how Microsoft's been making all these apps really good is like for each platform, they're doing what is sort of like best equipped to do. So on iOS, they like made a really good handwriting engine. And on OS 10, they added this recording thing first. And I think they're converging, but they're really kind of like looking for the comparative advantage of each platform. How much typing versus handwriting are you doing on iOS? I'd say for OneNote, it's maybe it's maybe more typing than handwriting because a lot of the time I'm typing in code or writing thoughts. And actually OneNote on iOS has a equation editor so you can insert equations without having to handwrite them. Um, so on OneNote, I'd say it's maybe 60-40 typing to handwriting. Um, so yeah, it's it's OneNote's been really great for maintaining my notes and uh, logging all the meetings I have with advisors. And it's where I go kind of to sort of search all the stuff I've been doing for the past, you know, two years. Um, just uh, as someone who uses the iPad Pro as his mobile device, are you at all interested in like third party or, or Bluetooth keyboards? They do everything on the glass. I mean, how are you getting text in when you're not using your pencil? I'm a, I use the smart keyboard. I really, really like it a lot. Um, I thought I was going to hate it. I tried it in the store and I hated it and I didn't buy one for a while. And now I, I really like it a lot. Um, it works super well. I like that it's immediately connected and that if I want to switch to typing on glass, I can just undock it and not have to worry about the Bluetooth connection, um, being maintained and all of that. Um, and actually I very recently got this elastic pencil holder that attaches to the smart keyboard cover. So now I have a little slot for my for my pencil on the smart keyboard too. So it's kind of a all-in-one solution for me. You have to send us a link for that. I, I'm on Team Smart yeah, Keyboard Yeah, I got too. it on Etsy. Yeah. I think it's great. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of people who hate it, but it really doesn't take that much bulk. And to have the ability to, with one click, have a full-size keyboard, there's some nice pieces to that. Are you a dictation guy at all? Do you ever uh, use dictation to get text in? Well, I so I have a cubicle around a lot of people. So in that time, I definitely am not a dictation guy. But when I'm at home, I do I do really like doing it. Yeah. Um, okay. But the interesting thing about when we were talking before we recorded the show is not only are you a OneNote user, you're also an Apple Notes guy. So I thought, well, hey, here's somebody who's using both of them at once. Usually you pick a team here. Why can't you make up your mind, <laughs> Teddy? <laughs> yeah, so basically what how it works is any like really big project, like for example, dissertation, which is pretty big, um I use OneNote and for other just kind of like reference style stuff, kind of what I used to use Evernote for, I use notes. So stuff in which I'm just throwing things in from web pages I like or receipts and stuff like that, um I use notes for. I actually have a folder in notes called code that's just snippets of code from different languages that I find really useful that I keep kind of referring back to, be it statistical code or Apple script or whatever, Java. Yeah, use, useful um, terminal commands, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Stuff like that. And I, and it's really nice. I think the, the fact that the extension has an append to functionality instead of just making a new note is kind of the biggest thing for me that makes it really useful. It does lend itself to um, kind of like a Dropbox replacement in that way. Um, yeah, it's really good. Like that's, I really, really like notes, but a lot of the time I'm super frustrated with it for a couple of reasons. And I really hope that this is just like growing pains. It is, I guess, the first version of the new notes app. Um, but something's about it just drive me nuts. So, for example, the fact that if, if you're on an iPad with a smart keyboard and you're making a list, 
and you press tab, it should indent that list, right? It shouldn't just make a tab in between the the like bullet and the word. It should actually indent it. And yeah. on notes, it doesn't indent it, which is just totally crazy to me. Or, or you know what is because I use notes a lot. It's like, why on earth do you have two different keyboard shortcuts to do the same thing on, on the Mac? Like it's, I think it's, it's memory for me, a command shift T for a title. And on the iPad, it's option command T. I mean, both keyboards, both have the same keyboard and they have the same, you know, so why would you make it that the user has to use different keyboard shortcuts depending on what version of the Apple hardware he's using nuts, you know, but the, uh, yeah, absolutely. The, the big question with um, notes is, is it really, is it, is it a long-term long haul project for Apple or was it like the thrill of 2015 and is it now, do they feel like it's okay <laughs> and they don't need to do anything more to it? You know, are they going to continue to develop it or are they going to leave it? And, um, see, and that, the, the thing that makes me so nervous about that is that I think it's pretty hard to get stuff out of notes, right? Like you can PDF it, I guess, but it doesn't accept or export HTML in a way that like, you know, Evernote used to. And so, or Evernote does, I guess. And so I'm nervous putting all my stuff in it, knowing that, like you said, this might just be something that then doesn't get an update for like three years. Yeah. Ooh, did I just hear that it's easier to get stuff out of Evernote than it is out of Apple Notes? <laughs> <laughs> when we put that in the outline, I'm like, Katie is going to ram this one in places for me that are dark. And you all thought I wasn't paying attention. Because <laughs> we like, right, because we were so upset about Evernote for so long that like, oh, it's this like ENML format or yeah. whatever. But honestly, it, it gives you some basic HTML and Notes just gives you basically plain text. Yeah, right. I, I'm actually OK with plain text because that's all I've ever really used. This is the first time I've I've used a rich text system for my Notes system. So if mm. I if I had to punch eject and take everything out as plain text, I'd probably be okay with that. But uh, I think the next year or two, I mean, I I'm I'm currently using notes as my thing, which is it started to me as like a big joke. I was going to use it so I could write about how terrible it is, and then now I'm using it every day. It's in my dock. I mean, who would have thought an Apple Notes app ever would land in my dock? But the um, but that doesn't mean I'm sold forever, you know. And if they don't continue to do to fix some of these problems and, and frankly drive it forward, I'll probably be out the door at some point. So uh, it's going to be curious to see how this plays out. Um, we also, when we were getting ready for the show, Eddie, uh, Teddy, we, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I don't know what, I think it's, um, I, I I'm going to stop drinking before we record a new rule um, <laughs> and, and cut back on the cough syrup. And yeah, yeah. apparently, <laughs> yeah. but the, uh, but you also are a power user of workflow and that's an app that comes up on the show occasionally, but we haven't given it as much attention as it deserves. And, um, just like recently, as I've been getting way more into iOS, I cannot get over how much every time I have a problem, I just go into workflow and, and with a few taps, I can usually build my own little mini program to solve the problem. And you've done this as well. Uh, you had a couple that I thought were really great, and I want the listeners to check out. The first one is... Uh, and we'll linked... put links to these, by the way, in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've got links. And But the first one, describe a little bit this link to text uh, in the mail app workflow you have. Sure, yeah. So so the thing that I usually use workflow for, workflow for are things that I feel like iOS should be able to do anyway, but it doesn't, and workflow lets me kind of do it. So one of those examples is putting rich text in mail, not just bold and italic, but links, right? Even now, 
with iOS 9, you can't just select text and say insert link and add a hyperlink to text. Yeah, I made a whole so, video for drafts on that. Like if you want to put a link, embed a link in words, you have to write the email in Markdown and then send it to mail. You know, that's how goofy is that? That you have to go to another app to make that work. Exactly. So, so I have this little workflow where I write some text and I select it. And one of the nice things with iOS 9 is if you select any kind of text in the mail app, you can tap share and activate the share sheet. So I'll select that text, hit share, run this workflow, and it asks me for a hyperlink. And I insert the URL, usually from my clipboard, and then it turns it into a rich hyperlinked uh uh, phrase that I could then just paste right back into where the plain text was. And there you go. Yeah. Nice. And and we'll have a link for this. So if you've got workflow installed, you can just install this and get going. Um, uh, there's a couple, we had a couple more mail ones, the one turn markdown text in mail, uh, to rich text. So are you taking existing text out of a composed message? Yeah, so this is, I guess, very similar to what you do with drafts, but I just do it in mail. Sometimes I'm typing in mail and realize that I want to have like a bulleted list in it. And so I'll just keep typing as though it's Markdown. And then I'll select it all, run this workflow and paste it. And it'll be a rich text version of it. Yeah. And uh, you also had one. I haven't tried this one, but you had linked in the show notes. Save any file anywhere. What's that about? So this is like... You know how in mail, when you tap on an attachment, it has a save attachment button that gives you the option to save your attachment to any cloud provider you have. This adds that to anything, to Safari, to whatever, any app that has an open in function. Whenever you open that file and you tap this workflow, it'll bring up that document provider thing and you can choose what service to save and where and it'll save it there. So it's I use it the most in Safari when I have like a PDF I want to put somewhere. And it's a really nice way to basically have a save dialog box anywhere in iOS. I got a tip for the listeners on the um, my constant battle to save a text of an email as a PDF. There is some progress. We haven't checked in on the show for a while. I think this is kind of related. Can I get away with this, Katie? Go for it. The, um, if you have <laughs> if you have an iPhone 6S with force press, like all of us on the show except Katie, um, you can force press on an email and it will give you the the ability to save the text of the email as a PDF. But they only have it on the force press iPads or I'm sorry, the force press phones, which doesn't make any sense to me. Didn't we also get a tip in an MPU live about being able to print to a PDF if you had a three a- yeah, touch that's what it phone. is. You, you yeah. do it basically through the print button. Right. The other thing is I do, I, I'm running a copy, you know, I run um, some third-party mail apps to, just because of the extra tools they have because Apple can't seem to, to add that. But anyway, I am I am uh, going to get off that little side train here and we can talk some more. Um, say, send a Word PDF doc to any application. So what was the reason you came so, up with that workflow? This is because this is for two reasons. One is that I find that any like a lot of word richly formatted word documents don't work for traditional PDF converters like the app PDF converter or workflow has a PDF converter. The best way to get a PDF of a word document is to open it in word and export it as a PDF. So I do that. But when word asks you to share a PDF <laughs> when we're asking you to share a PDF, it just gives you the ability to mail it, to message it, and a couple of other things. And so this workflow 
will basically take that PDF and give you an actual open-in sheet. So you can then open that PDF into any app because for some reason, Word's default one uses the share the shared dialogue instead of the open-end dialogue or something, but whatever it is, this actually makes it work. Because they think they can do it better, Teddy. Is, have we got a theme going here? <laughs> the, and I would add to that that one of my complaints with Word on iOS is I have in the past tried to to even just mail it off as PDF, which is the, the enabled function, and had recipients say, hey, that PDF you, you sent me won't open. I can't get it to work. And, and I don't know, and I've had that happen actually multiple times. So I'm not convinced that the PDF rendering going on in word is all that great anyway. So this workflow may be the way around that problem too. Hmm. Um, well, we, we've been going a long time, but there's a couple more here. I think that are kind of cool. You had some today view widgets cause you know, you can add widgets to today view through workflow and you had a couple good ideas for some of them. Yeah, so the ones that I use the most are delete last photo and copy last photo. And that's often because I'm just taking a screenshot to send to somebody. So I'll take the screenshot, do whatever I want with it. And then, well, I'll take a screenshot, hit the copy last photo workflow, and it'll copy it to my clipboard, do whatever I want with it, and then hit delete last photo. And without opening workflow or anything, it'll just give you a little dialogue saying, do you want to delete this photo? And you can just get rid of that screenshot just like that. Yeah, and all these are going to be, we're going to have links for them, plus the others that Teddy has, like post to Instagram from photos and search selected text with Google. I thought that one was already built in. I didn't, did you create a custom workflow for that? Yeah, well, so the the search selected test, text with Google is in a lot of other, in a lot of apps that don't have the define button available, some of them don't. You could then run this workflow and I'll just search that in Google. Nice. Yeah, or even find out info about a file. I'm going to install that one because sometimes I need info on a file and there's not really an easy way to do that in iOS. You know, right. There's no command I. Um, so much more, Teddy, but we've already gone long. The, uh, in addition to being a very smart gentleman, you also uh, are a musician and uh, there's a bunch of apps you use. And I think we'll maybe have you come back someday to talk about that stuff. Um, sounds great. The, um, but, but one last thing that you had mentioned, uh, in the prep is how you have become a fan of Zinio. And I don't think a lot of our listeners know about that. So just take a minute and tell us about what that is. Sure. So Zinio is an app that basically gives you just a, a digital replica of print magazines. So instead of like the New Yorker app with all of its like scrolling text, it just gives you a replica of the New Yorker of this week with just all the pages as static pages. And for the longest time, this wasn't very helpful to me because the screens were so small. But with the iPad Pro, I can basically read the New Yorker in full screen without zooming or anything on my iPad Pro, which is really just great. And what's nice is that Zinio oftentimes is partnered with local libraries. So my library here in Boston I can get the latest New Yorker, New York Review of Books, Economist, whatever, uh, for free and open that in Zinio and just read it full screen. It's great. And even if you can't get a deal with your library, I think, aren't they on a subscription model? Yeah, and, and, and I think they're quite a bit cheaper than a lot of traditional subscriptions because all they're giving you is this print replica and no like access to the websites and stuff. So it's actually a pretty affordable way to do it. Yeah, I, I think that's becoming an option now. Well, t- well, Teddy, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all this with us. We, we covered a lot today, but boy, it was great stuff. Yeah, it was wonderful to be here. Thanks to you both. Jam-packed show for sure. Thank you so much for coming on. 
um, and sharing all this. And we should mention that you have a website where you have posted um, a lot of your photo, of, uh, excuse me, a lot of your workflows, um, a lot of your write-ups. Tell people where they can find you online and Twitter and all that good stuff if you do that. Sure. So my website is my name, teddiesferonos.com, S-V-O-R-O-N-O-S. Um, and my Twitter handle is tedsvo, T-E-D-S-V-O. So my website's pretty much where you can find my stuff. Awesome. Thanks so much, Teddy. Thanks also to our sponsors, uh, the Omni Group, Casper, Linode, and Igloo. And uh, we will see you all next week. <laughs>